Welcome back to Hunkering Down with Peter Schwartz. I'm your host, Peter Schwartz. Joining me today, I will say I am I'm looking forward to this podcast, probably not for the reasons that you might expect, um, but we actually have so much in common um, that I, I I've been I've been surfing this case to be quite honest. Um, Brad Harold, uh, that's with an E, as I often make the mistake. He's joining us. Good morning, Brad. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, that was a good introduction. We do have a lot in common. We do. Like, I mean, it's like, um, you know, we both love, I mean, I know we both love Apple. I mean, we're both Apple uh, and tech aficionados. We probably, I think we like, I think we have an arms race with each other on who's getting the latest Apple product. I think you're, I get you. You, you dropped this like 10 minutes before the podcast just to throw me off my game. I noticed this. You sent me a shipping notice from Apple. What, what are you getting? I, well, today the new MacBook Airs went on sale at okay. 7 a.m. And so when you asked me about doing this podcast, I had circled in my calendar that 7 a.m. I had to wake up and order, uh, order the new MacBook Air. Uh, before this podcast. So yeah, I ordered the new air. I'm a big believer in the air. I have a pro. It's just too heavy to carry around all the time. I uh, I could go down a whole rabbit hole here, but I will say, um, let me finish off. We we both work in and around Florida politics. Um, you Let me introduce you. You tell me where I'm wrong. You have worked for Marco Rubio, you were you were the early adapter on the Ron DeSantis for Governor campaign. Worked for the party, and now you are at a a big firm, um, kind of one of the biggest firms in the country, handling a variety of major Republican U.S. Senate, gubernatorial, and down ballot races. Am I, am I getting that right? Yeah, that's right. So I'm a you know I'm now a partner at Something Else Strategies, which is a nationwide Republican media consulting firm. And um, uh, I came to know them through uh, my uh, my partners, Heath, Mallory, Todd, uh, all did Marco Rubio's race in 2010. Um, and I got to know them then. And then when I went to work for Adam Hasner in 2012, they were the media consultants there. Um, and then I, uh, I stayed with them. They moved me out to Minnesota for a cycle to run against Al Franken. I did that race with them and then came back to work for Marco again in 2016. And so after, after the 2016 cycle, they asked me, you know, if I wanted to come work, uh, work at the firm, I work there and now I'm a partner. So it's exciting stuff. I love, I love Florida, but I love doing stuff all over the country. So. And, and you mostly focus on television production and general consulting. It's to put you in a silo. Am I? Am I, I mean, we really well? just, yeah, mainly just TV. I mean, we make, okay. we're, you know, I tell people who are not involved in politics, like we're an ad agency. You know, our niche is just political campaigns and, and issue advocacy stuff, but we're essentially an ad agency. Um, so we, we handle all of the, you know, uh, strategy of the ad buys, but then also, you know, most importantly, the scripting and directing and producing. And so, uh, you know, my job mainly consists of, of media strategizing, writing scripts, flying all over the country to direct and produce those scripts. And so, you know, I just got back from a two day shoot yesterday. I'm home for a few days and then leave again next week. Um, you know, so it's, it's exciting stuff. It's a lot of plane travel, but, 
But uh, I think it's the most, you know, the most exciting part of campaigns. It's the place where most campaigns, at least in the governor and Senate level, spend their money. So if you want to be involved in the highest, uh, the highest parts, the most important parts of the campaign, the TV is really the best place to do it because it's where you're going to spend most of your money. Okay, so Brad, you and I got to know each other basically talking about DeSantis early on, I want to say tw- late 2017, um, uh, early 2018. You basically were, were telling me, hey, this is where we're at. We think these things are going to happen. And when they do happen, we're going to be here. You were Cassandra. A lot of people didn't believe that. A lot of people were like, hey, the Putnam juggernaut is going to you know, steamroll this guy no matter what happens. And then uh, obviously Donald Trump tweets uh, an endorsement for DeSantis, but he's also, it's clear now, if you go back to it, it isn't just the endorsement. DeSantis just had a nose for where I think the Republican Party was going. Um, And so that's how we got to kind of know each other of them, right? Isn't that our first kind of interact, not our first interactions, but our are where we, uh, I guess, became friends and started talking more often. Yeah, I mean, I would say, <clears throat> I would say you and I dealt a lot. Really, the first kind of stuff we dealt with was when I was at the party with Blaze in sixteen. Oh, that's um, right. That's but right. yeah, yes. definitely, yeah. In, definitely in seventeen. I mean, when when uh, Ron was gearing up for the governor's race and kind of, you know, the, I think the, you know, you have obviously very well connected sources. But the first half of twenty seventeen, there were a lot of people asking. Well, is Ron going to run? There were a lot of people trying to push him into the attorney general's race. Um, and look, I, the thing about Ron is he's got some of the best political instincts of anybody I've ever worked for. Um, and it's really, you know, it's really easy to work for those kinds of candidates. Um, and so Ron saw an opening. He thought, he thought, yeah, Putnam has this money and all this establishment support, but I think, I think he's going to have a real hard time in a Republican primary. And he, and he told me, you know, to his credit, he's he still is a big fan of Richard Corcoran, but he thought, you know, he thought whoever ran against Putnam from the right would probably beat him in a primary. And he thought he could do a better job of putting together a campaign to do that. And, and he bared it out. I mean, I, I, I jokingly tell the story. We were in a townhouse um, in D.C. in 2017. Ron was in session and me and, and my partners flew up and we met with them and we kind of laid out like a campaign strategy of here's, you know, here's like an ideal way that this would work here. Are like the 10 things we think you need to do. It was July of 2017. Here are the 10 things we think you, you, know, you should do before the end of the year. And we do this with a lot of candidates and it's like, here are 10 things. If you can do five, we think you'll be successful. And like to Ron's credit, he did all 10 of them. I mean, he at six months, Ron went out and raised the money he needed to raise. He, we increased the Fox News stuff. He was, you know, he's so good at the stuff he filed when he was in Congress that would get him on Fox News and all that stuff. And I, so he was like, he's probably the only candidate I've ever worked with. Where you're like, hey, here are the 10 things we think would be good. If you do five of them, we're going to be in good shape. And he was like, nah, just go do all 10. <laughs> he's, um, I think, as like the national media starts to look at him more, um, I will say, I think one of the better aspects for him is is kind of the sheer brain power. I think, you know, I think some of his critics get lost in thinking that he's just another, you know, uh, hard right Republican. But, you know, no, this guy is like he is thinking he is the smartest guy in the room. Um, he may not be the most personable person in the room and he may not care what other people in the room have to think. I still think he has those issues. But the idea that he is not 
the smartest or one of the smartest people in any room that he walks into. I think that the narrative now has shifted and has is starting to give him credit as he moves um, to the national stage. Or was that always there? I mean, if you knew him, uh, that was always there. I mean, I, I would joke that he, you would ask him about like a policy issue. And now Dustin, who was his chief of staff, you know, would do this much more than I would because they were dealing with stuff in Congress. But but you would you would watch Ron, you would like ask him about a policy thing and he would stop and he'd take them all and he kind of look off to the left. And I would always joke that at that moment he was mentally catalog, he was going through his mental catalog of the Federalist Papers uh, to decide <laughs> if he thought something was constitutional or not, because he yeah. just had you know, he, he is, he really is a genius. I mean, he, like, he, you don't go from, you know, being in his background and fighting your way into Yale and ultimately Harvard Law School, you know, by not being the smartest guy in the room. And so uh, I think, I totally think that I've always said that about him. I don't, you know, I don't talk to a lot of these national reporters for their profile pieces, but if I did, that would be the one thing I would tell them. And well, it's, it's clear watching him that he, um, I don't know. I, I think part of it is he just doesn't suffer fools lightly. Um, and, you know, as much as I am critical and I, there's just, I just don't like some of the stuff. And that doesn't even think that I, I think he, um, that he is wrong. I just don't like them. Like, it's not how I want to, um, <clears throat> how I want to order society, but that's my, and, and I think we're welcome to have a, uh, a debate about that, correct? Like, I think we can argue whether or not we should be, uh, we should have wear masks or not. Um, but I think where a lot of the media comes at him from is just this disdain. And I, I, I don't think they can resist it. And I think that they, you know, we're doing our winners and losers for this week. We're doing our up and down arrows. And there are just so many examples, you know, whether it be John Cooper had tweeted out some stuff whether it be Salon with a bad headline from a year and a half ago, and whether it be uh, the Washington Post again and again, they just make it so difficult for the Florida media to cover him uh, because they, um, I don't know, it's like they Bigfoot into here and it, it, the stuff just, their criticisms end up boomeranging. Point in case, like they said, it had to do with the, um, like the, the, the surveys in the universities. I don't agree with that bill. I don't like it, but it is not requiring students and teachers to register their political beliefs. But once you drop that headline in there, as Salon did, as John Cooper did in a tweet, now you are, you've left yourself open to being boomeranged by the DeSantis, Christina Pushaw juggernaut. Um, and and I, I, that is my I guess that's my biggest frustration right now with the national media about him. Well, he's, he is, uh, he's always had this, like the mega, the megaphone is bigger now. He's, you know, America's governor, but you know, go look at the stuff he did in Congress. Like Ron was very smart about, like he is a principled guy. He is a constitutional classical conservative. Um, and the stuff he does, you know, plays into that, um, plays into that policy. But like Ron is very good and always has been very good about knowing the things that are going to trigger the media 
you know, and, and using that to push, you know, what he believes is the right agenda. And so he was, I mean, he was incredible at that when he was in Congress, even when he was, you know, Ron was not in leadership, you know, he was not a, uh, you know, he was not some long-term congressman who could pull the levers of power, but Ron was very good at being on the cutting edge of conservative, uh, you know, conservative policy and using that as a platform. And, um, he has like kind of mastered it, <laughs> you know, I'm watching it now and like watching the way he has kind of mastered what he did in Congress, but he's always had this. He just has really good political instincts and he knows, you know, he knows what, what is going to push those people. But to your point, it's like, it's like Lucy in the football, right? Like he keeps putting the football down, knowing that the national press is going to run up and try and kick it. And he just keeps pulling it out from under him. And, and it's, it's only made him more, you know, it's only made him more popular. Uh, I think not, you know, Florida, obviously, but nationally too. I mean, you're seeing it, you know, they've, he has now become, I think I said this to a reporter like early on, I think Ron relishes the Biden fight. He's happy to have it. It doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't affect him at all. I think some of these governors, like they would wilt under the pressure, um, but Ron welcomes the fight. Well, I think, all right. So to that end, I think he, you know, personality-wise, is almost the exact opposite of Joe Biden. I mean, it's, you know, he's a military veteran, uh, younger, um, you know, went to the elite schools, which Biden is so often um, want to point out, um, you know, a senator uh, for, you know, versus a governor in, in, their, in their frameworks, how they think about things. You know, Joe Biden is a big government Democrat, uh, obviously, DeSantis is a limited government conservative. I mean, an extraordinarily strict limited government conservative. But even in their personalities where, you know, where Biden is a the old, you know, Irish backslapping pole, you know, I don't, DeSantis is a, is, I mean, I, I think, I don't think that he's as bad. All right, excuse me, I will say his retail game has gotten better, especially during the pandemic. I watch him. It's not just him mimicking some of the Trump mannerisms, but his his ability for to do callbacks with the crowd that he knows will respond like, you know, uh, on kind of like raw, raw red meat stuff. He's gotten a little bit of that down. You know, I've always I've always thought that he was going to have problems in Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, and, and now I see him at the, you know, Lee County Sheriff's Office doing a press conference and if he's speaking in that kind of friendly confine, which is what he will be doing on a primary trail, I think he's fine. I don't know. I don't. I can't remember the last time we saw Ron DeSantis out in the open. I'm not, and that's for a, a conversation. Or I'll hold on to that for a second. We have not seen him like take questions from, you know, a, a Florida town, CNN town hall meeting. Like, and I don't know that he's ever going to uh, before he, you know as he pursues the presidency. Um, so the Biden, I think you're right. The Biden DeSantis thing just sets up perfectly for DeSantis going into, um, into not only 2024, but even before that, like they just have a sharper political edge here in Tallahassee. Whereas, you know, uh, I, I, some of the things that Biden says, you know, just, it's very frustrating as somebody who voted for Joe Biden and wanted him to, you know what was it they were the uh the grown-ups were back in charge it just doesn't feel like the grown-ups are back in charge uh definitely doesn't feel like the grown-ups are back in charge i think to your point you know what i tell people is 
like I, I don't I, I have no idea what's going to happen in 2024 but um yes you do like, Ron, <laughs> no I, I you know you just don't I, want I you don't want to go there because the worst <laughs> thing to do in politics is to is to stake out a hot take and and then have to walk it back and see like you eviscerated on Twitter <laughs> you know, a year and a half later, this tweet aged well when, you know, suddenly it's uh, Gavin Newsom is the nominee or whatever, you know, I, but go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think every politician tries to tries to say this and it's, it's much more cliche um, for a lot of them than it is for Ron, but like Ron really is a fighter in the sense that like, he had to, you know, coming from where he came from, he had to fight, you know, his way into Yale, you know, to hear Ron tell the story, you know, he, he loved baseball. His dream was playing baseball at Florida. He wasn't quite good enough, but he would go to these showcases and they'd find out he was smart and Yale and these Ivy league schools were always looking for good athletes who could meet the academic standards. And he figured out very quickly, like, Hey, I could go to Yale or I think Princeton was the other choice and play baseball. And that was my ticket into, you know, these higher, uh, uh, into these higher institutions. But, but, you know, you talking about uh, people pointing out that he went to these elite institutions, like he has this great story about showing up to Yale on the first day of school and he's wearing jean shorts and, you know, he's around all these kids who came who came from Phillip, Phillips Exeter and all these other elite boarding schools, you know, and he shows up this Florida kid in a T-shirt and jean shorts and realizes very quickly, like, he is out of his element. And he had to fight through four years because he was this conservative and, you know, at liberal Yale and playing baseball. And, and then he, you know, he got into Harvard and he didn't take the, you know, he could have taken the easy path. He, he talks about this. The easy path was, you know, you go to Yale and Harvard, like the world is your oyster. You can go anywhere. You can go to wall street, make money. Um, and he like went into the military, which was I mean, kind of, kind of a crazy deal, but you know, something he felt strongly about. And so, and then every, every point when he ran for Congress, the first time he was the third, you know, third or fourth guy in that race. And people thought he was this kind of weirdo who had self-published a book and he proved them all wrong. He, he and Casey went and knocked on some crazy number of doors, like a hundred thousand doors. I wasn't part of that race, but some crazy number of doors. And then when he ran for Senate, everybody, you know, everybody said he couldn't do it. He wouldn't raise money, blah, blah, blah. You know, ultimately dropped out of that race. And same thing happened when he ran for governor. So I, I think he relishes the, like, everyone says I can't do this. And I, ultimately the conversation around that is changing. I think more and more every day, but like he relishes the, I'm going to have to fight for this. People are discounting me. I'm the underdog. I think he loves that. I, I wish, I wish for his sake, I wish for Florida's sake, I feel like, uh, like the first couple of dates went bad with this guy, you know, like I feel like Republicans themselves were well establishment Republicans, which let's be honest, like if, if Ron DeSantis were to fall flat on his face in 2023, early 24 in the presidential. Um, there's a lot of Tallahassee and a lot of the Florida political establishment that would quietly enjoy that. Um, they would not, they would keep it to themselves, but they, they're, they're waiting for the, the market correction on, on Ron DeSantis. And then I feel like he got introduced to the state basically, you know, winning a very narrow governor's race. And I really liked that, you know, that first six months, that period, 
And then quite honestly, the pandemic just happened. And I, I feel like almost all of the politicians that went into that jet stream, you know, there was never any time, obviously, for the ribbon cutting or going to the 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 dinners or, you know, um, you know, touring the state on bill signings. It was just, hey, stop doing what you're doing. Um, and I'm in a windbreaker at the Division of Emergency Management. And so no matter what your recovery or what, excuse me, what your like response to the pandemic was, it was still all like negative and authoritarian. Like, and that, that not even in a, it doesn't even matter if it was working. It was just who the hell wants to govern or has to want, who the hell uh, wants to govern during a period like that. That is not it. That is not why people get into politics. I don't think to govern during a two year pandemic and send kids home, bring kids back, you know, lock down this unlock down that fight all the time. And so I just, I still feel like with, with governor DeSantis, I still feel like a lot of the state doesn't know who he is. I don't think that they know the aspect you're talking about. The, you know, he gets made fun of for going to Harvard and Yale, but it's like, man, this was a guy, uh, uh, um, I don't want to say lower middle class guy, but a basically a, a hard scrabble middle class guy from Pinellas County. The fact that he got into Yale and then went into Harvard is kind of a big deal. And if it were anybody else, I think we would be making a bigger deal about the early part of his career. But there really just is no core, uh, credit given to him for that. Yeah, well, I think most of the um, we tried to do some of that on the campaign, but it just it was so, you know, you win that primary and all of a sudden it became all about Gillum um, so quickly from the national, you know, from the national press. Every story was, you know, about this young black Democrat who was going to be a future leader in the party and he got all this national attention. So the race you know, for better or worse, really became about Gillum in 2018. We didn't really get to tell Ron's story all that effectively. Um, and so I, you're probably right that like a lot of people don't know that about him. And now all, you know, now I see all these like national profile pieces. Everybody wants, wants to write one on Ron every two weeks, but like, they're always, they always seem to leave that stuff out. They just want to write about the, you know, what's happened since he's become governor. But I think he'll get a chance to tell that story. I mean, whatever he does, whether it's in this campaign or or in a net and another one, um, I think he'll get to tell that story. I think you know that stuff will come out because it's part of his story and like informs why he why he is the way he is. Is so much of it is you know those early formative years. And Casey's got a very similar story to that, and so I think they'll both get a chance to tell theirs. Yeah, Casey is. I mean, this country. I think once they get to know Casey, I mean, it's really hard to find um much not to like about Casey DeSantis um uh, you know and I just you know of all I mean there's a lot you know, there's a lot of um accomplished first ladies and first ladies to be and some actually outshine I mean Ted Cruz's wife probably is a more accomplished professional person than Ted Cruz is but it's just like Casey DeSantis really is a rock star um and like if all things being equal, if, if if it was DeSantis versus some other Republican, I think Casey is just going to bring on such a phenomenal, um, almost the ability to do a Republican Camelot. I know people are going to, I think, I know that's going to make people on the Democratic side just, you know, just sick in a way. The idea 
of 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 a young Republican family in the White House. But that's what it's going to be. Um, I really think that that's that, that's where we're headed. I don't want to talk about DeSantis the whole time, although I do want to come back to where we're at going into 2022. We are going through. a. I want to hit a, a couple of other topics and then get to, to some fun topics, uh, because we again, we do have so much. We both have a young family, both have a lot of same uh, interest. We're going to save our conversation about heat, uh, heat too, uh, till the end. Um, but let's talk about your main. Because I've got the hottest take possible on heat, but I'm saving it for the end. I, I know. I mean, it, and listen, I think a lot of people come to my podcast for the heat takes and then and then get the political afterwards. Um, what about your main client, Marco Rubio? Like I saw the 538 analysis. Um, and I think that they pay it at like a 90 something percent chance that he wins re-election. And I'm not going to agree or disagree with that, but I will say, or I'll, I'll ask you, why is Val Demings not taking off? Like what's, what's missing here? Like the more, that's kind of where I'm at this week. Like, I feel like I look back at the number and I think she has spent already 30 million uh, dollars or something like that out of her campaign. And I don't know. And now that could be 30 million to raise 32. I don't know. Um, it just seems like, I don't know, she has not caught fire in any measurable way, especially, you know, the, the big problem for her is there's a lot of other states that Democrats can play in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, et cetera, uh, states where you're probably at. Uh, that are a lot less expensive than Florida. So she not only had to overcome that she was running against an incumbent, but she had to run against the opportunity cost lost by Democrats if they were to take dollars away from other states uh, and put them here. And I will say, like, I don't think she is in a good position. I don't think that that's a, some great hot take, but she doesn't seem like she's, she does not seem like she is poised to break out um, as we're in the depths of summer here. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I think um, that campaign hasn't kicked off yet. You know, it's it's been a lot of build up. The you know the spring is compressed, right? It's ready to it's ready to be sprung, and so um, that campaign is going to kick off in earnest. But look, I think Marco has Marco has done an incredible job. I think he's done it since he's been senator. But the big knock on him when he ran in twenty sixteen when he ran for re-election was that he had been off running for president. And I think people found out during the course of that campaign, that wasn't really the case. Like Marco had been doing all of these things in Florida, constituent services and visiting the state and helping people. I, I can tell you as a matter of fact, what, what he's done over the last six years has really changed people's ideas about what he can do, you know, what he's done for Florida. Um, and I think we're really excited about telling some of that story, but like, I, I can just tell you, there was a, um, there was a sheriff I was with the other day, uh, who said, you know, look, we had this terrible storm come through you know, a couple of years ago. And the only, you know, the only statewide elected official who called me to see if we were okay was Marco. And like, he is taking that stuff very, very seriously. He's done a great job. And I think that's why ultimately, Look, the, the environment's going to be really good. The demographics in the state are changing. You know, you remember this, you know, 10 years ago, everybody was telling us how, 
you know, demographics or destiny and Republicans are going to be outnumbered in Florida and you have all these people moving in. And that that narrative has completely shifted now. Republicans outnumber Democrats in the state for the first time ever. And that lead is growing. And so I think the environment's good. I think uh, I think the that, state the way, is getting more red, not less. That was one. That is one of those. You want to talk about a hot take that has not aged well. And not, it's not even that it hasn't aged well, it just proved to be not correct. But the whole, there was a hurricane and natural disaster in oh, Puerto yeah. Rico, and that's going to drop 300,000 Puerto Rican, uh, like the diaspora from Puerto Rico into yeah. Osceola and Orange County. And that's going to be the bowling ball in the bathtub that tilts Florida blue. Man, that didn't happen at all. That's almost as bad as my Gillum plus seven general election take, which, you know, I, I deeply, deeply regret. And I got bamboozled into it by Kevin Kate. Uh, but uh. that, uh, that take, and I'm going to leave it. I'm not going to say who, who wrote about it the most. I think people will know because he's such a nice person. Uh, but man, that, that prediction just did not come, come about at all. And we talked a lot about it in 2018 after the hurricane and people were, you know, people, there were all these stories written about it, both in Florida and nationally about, you know, these people moving in from Puerto Rico. Here's what we knew and Republican consultants have known for a generation in Florida is if Puerto Ricans come from the island, they are more conservative than the Puerto Ricans who would move, you know, people of Puerto Rican descent who would move from New York. You know, if you if you went to New York first and then you came here, you're probably a, you know, you lean much more liberal. Um, but if you come from the island, you have a very conservative bent to you. And especially now under this, you know, what I'll call the new the new right, the new Republican Party that appeals much more to Puerto Ricans. You know, the, they're back. They believe in traditional values. I mean, they totally understand this. And so I think we've done uh, and going back to Marco he has always had an ability to appeal to them both through language and he has a shared, you know, a shared uh, kind of historical identity that they can relate to. You know, he's obviously not Puerto Rican, but his, his story of his parents and how they came here and all that stuff, it, it, it resonates with them in a way that it doesn't with some other, uh, some other swing groups. And he's done a ton of work in central Florida with the Boricuaneers, you know, the World War II veterans, yeah. uh, Puerto Rican veterans. He's done a ton of work in that. I mean, he's he's really done a good job, you know, not just with that group, but a bunch of other groups. And I, and I think it's what makes him such a difficult person to run against. But but again, there's only two ways to run, scared and unopposed. And so I think Marco is primed to to run a really good race. Yeah, I'm going to have to, I, you know, I've always been tough on Marco because I feel like I want, you know, I have this like expectation that he's going to be... I mean, I, I'll put it this way. He's not a bad senator. I don't think he is the greatest senator, but I'm, you know, he's definitely in that, like, I don't know. It's hard to, it's, he does, there isn't a lot of scandal. There isn't a lot of um, ridiculous statements. I mean, compared to where some of, I mean, this is obviously from my perspective, I know you're not endorsing this part, but, you know, like if I had to choose between, you know, if I had to marry, fight, fuck, you know, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio. I mean, Marco's probably in the Mary category at this point, you know, and it's just like, I, I don't know uh, what I would do with the other two, you know, and some of the other like 
Republican firebrands. And quite honestly, I think Rick Scott has taken just such a, a bizarre turn. Um, it's not even a rightward turn. I guess maybe this is what the NRSC job does to you. But like, I thought he was on a very good path to being a kind of a responsible, uh, almost like, um, you know, he's so wealthy that he could be above it. But I, I guess he still has 2024 ambitions. And like, I mean, he just stepped on his, he stepped on himself with that, with the the, the tax plan and just the, like the doubling down and, um, you know, Kurt Anderson's decision to just, you know, when in trouble, just buy more television ads and put Scott on them. I, I don't know. I, I feel like he's just taken um, um, a wrong turn over the last year. Uh, it may have began quite honestly with the vote against, um, you know, uh, I think he had issues with Pennsylvania. I think the the idea that the election was not that uh, the January sixth vote by by Scott, quite honestly, did not sit well with me. I, and I think history will bear that out. I know you can't agree with that, or um, um, I don't know, go along with any of that. But um, I mean, all, just all I was going to say was you were you know Marco. Um, you talking about kind of what Marco's done, the turn he's taken. I mean, I don't know if it's a turn necessarily, but I think that that the China stuff yeah. has been a yeah. has been a um, uh, what's the right word? It has been like kind of a defining moment for Marco. It's something he feels really, really passionate about, and he's kind of become, you know, if not the certainly one of the leading senators on the China issue and the threat that that it poses to us both economically and militarily. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from he's seen it up close, um, you know, in Central America um, and the history he has dealing with foreign policy relations in Central America. And so I think he sees a lot of those tendencies and that that's a, informed a lot of his decisions about um, China. And that's that's something he's been able, a policy issue that he's been able to sink his teeth through. And it's not, look, it's not super sexy. It's not going to get you on, um, it's not going to get you on Fox News every night and people writing stories about it, but he thinks it's really important. And I think it's a it's been kind of one of those, um, you know, if not career, certainly term, you know, second term defining issues for him. And, and I think it's something that resonates kind of across party lines. All right. So where do you think things are in um, 2022? I mean, there's there's is there any place you see a, um, a vulnerability? for uh, Florida Republicans at this point. I mean, I, I, I don't see many. I don't know, maybe maybe a couple of congressional races, if, but I just, I don't see it. Uh, yeah, I don't see it either. <laughs> I mean, I think the what the Democrats have done over the last two years have, um, you know, they, they have completely, uh, they have completely imploded for lack of a better term. I mean, I, yeah. you know, you've got, yeah, I don't know what their strategy is. I'm not sure they have a strategy. It's clear the White House doesn't have a strategy, but there's nobody in national elected politics who's trying to talk these guys off the ledge. To your point, you know, you voted for Biden. I assume what most, you know, there were a lot of people in the middle, rightly or wrongly, who thought, well, let's vote for Biden because it's a return to normalcy. The grownups are back in the room. And that has completely spiraled out of control for them. And so if you're a, you know, if you're the swing voter, you're looking at it as I voted for Trump in 2016 and then I voted against them because I, you know, I just thought it was 
uh, it was too much and I wanted to return to normalcy, but all those people now are looking at their 401ks and, you know, with their grocery bills and they're thinking, you know what, I, I'm okay with like the Twitter account. If it means we can get the economy humming again, because at the end of the day, that's what people vote on are these pocketbook issues. And I think it's really starting to affect having real bad, uh, uh effect for people. And, and I think it's, it's overriding every other issue. And I just don't know how the Democrats can come out from under it. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I don't know where there is a vulnerability in Florida. I don't think that some of the things, um, I mean, I could, I think Janet Cruz maybe still holds off, uh, Jay Collins for the state Senate race, but that one's going to be tough. And, you know, I think, um, maybe Annette Tadeo has a shot at pulling off an upset. Um, but yeah, I just, I'm going to do everything I, I can to make sure that doesn't happen. Are you working that race? Yeah. 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 Maria is one of our clients, one of our favorite she, clients. Yeah. And, and like, she, she is a strong candidate. I mean, that's not, I just think that maybe that Annette, I also think Annette's a strong candidate and maybe there, there's gotta be an upset somewhere. Right. I mean, it just, sure. I don't know anybody that goes 20 and 20. Um, you know, I think, I mean, if I'm putting my prediction money down, I do think the Democrats hang on to the U S Senate just because Herschel Walker. I mean, you know, I know that, um, you know, I think that that campaign is just going to eventually implode. I don't know where else. I don't want to insult any of your clients or anywhere, you know, where anybody's working, but it's like, I think that Herschel Walker seat, it may be where the whole thing comes down to. And it just seems like that campaign, at least over the last two weeks has just got a lot of problems. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I read the story that everybody else has read over the last few days, but I, I mean, look, don't discount the fact that we are still four months out from the election. Four months is an eternity in politics. There are a lot of stories being written right now. Um, but Herschel is still a hero in Georgia to a lot of people and the economy is going to, inflation is going to continue to get worse. And I think, uh, I think Georgia is one of those states where, you know, they, they tend to buck conventional wisdom as I am all too familiar with. Um, and so I wouldn't write that one off just yet. I know a lot of people are saying, no, oh, well, Georgia. I, I think actually. And then I think I the Democrats have big problems in other states. I know Georgia is the tip of the spear, but they have huge problems in Nevada. They have huge problems in Arizona. You know, I, I think like the, Arizona may be the place where they have the best, you know, their best candidate of any of the Senate candidates running in swing seats. And I think they got real, real problems there. Yeah. Um, Pennsylvania, we'll see what happens. You know, I think that's gonna, that's still an uphill climb for them. Um, even though they, they think they've, you know, they got the can, they certainly got the candidate they wanted um, in Pennsylvania. I think that's a, that's a tough uphill climb for them. Um, Ohio, I just don't see how they're competitive there. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm still, I'm still bullish. Oh, there, there's, that, the, there's that whole poll out this week from, uh, from uh, that one group, uh, I think is center square or whatever, showing that uh, Tim Ryan is beating JD Vance. And I'm like, I, I don't know about that fellas. That's just like, yeah. uh, we'll see about uh, that. <laughs> yeah. I just, we'll see about I, don't, that. I don't know about that one. I also, I, I think you're right. Like just the top of the ballot is just not the top though. Well, let me start over. I will say, I, I don't think we expected uh, uh, the row decision to be as, I don't know, lightning in a bottle as it is. Like, I still feel like I, I will say, I, I'll say this pervy, 
I talk to a lot of women and they tell me they're upset. Um, no, I, I just talking to women now, again, this is my little social world. And so they're probably, you know, moderately or upper educated women, you know, living in suburbs. I, they're the ones that are reading the news. I think a lot of people already were, I think that they were, this was baked in the cake for them. Wasn't it? I mean, I will tell you this, this is the, this is what I, there are a lot of people over the last month, whenever the, the leak happened on the Dobbs opinion have been talking about this. And, and here's what I can tell you is the people who the life issue is a vote determinative for fall into two camps, you know, Christian conservatives who their number one issue is life. They're always going to vote Republican higher income, college educated white women. They almost always vote Democrat young to skew younger. The number one voting base that the Democrats need to activate this cycle uh, to win these races is they have to turn out older black voters, which is what Biden did you know, reconstituting some of the Obama uh, of the Obama coalition. The problem for them is that not only are older black voters not excited about coming out and voting, older black voters don't agree with them on this issue. They vote for Democrats in spite of the life issue. Older black voters are much more religious than younger Democrat white voters. And so this is not going to be the issue that motivates these people to come and turn out. I don't know what that issue is. I, the Democrats are desperately searching for it, but running a campaign on Roe versus Wade is not going to help them turn out older black voters, which is what they need to swing some of these seats. Hmm. Interesting. I, um, I, 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 I still feel like this is going to be that this issue once you see more stories about, and I'm not going to the veracity of this story, but just the the ten year old from Ohio who's who was raped and couldn't get an abortion, if that becomes a, a if those stories cascade um, and they cascade through the fall, I, I do feel like I I'll, I'll put it this way: if the Democrats, if there's anything that could save the Democrats, it is this decision uh, in the face of just unending bad news economically. Um, I, 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 although I will say, doesn't it feel like there are a few green sprouts like coming up on inflation? I thought gas was down a little bit, but again, I think people are hanging their hat on these things and these things are not gonna change structurally. Like for me personally, I need Disney to perform like at record levels for the next year, just to get back to what I've lost in the first six months of this year. Uh, I mean, Disney is still trading at like $95, $96. And I only bring that up because it's like, I can't imagine how many Florida residents literally probably have some Disney stock, all the retired Disney workers. It's got to be, it's got to be tens of thousands of Floridians who have, you know, Disney stocks, cruise stocks, et cetera, that have just been hammered over the first, um, the first part of the year. I, I, I'm, I, although I will say I keep buying the dip. My wife is just like, stop doing that. She thinks it's a jack and a beanstalk thing. But I'm like, come on, Disney. But then every time I'm ready to get on board with Disney, it's like another shitty movie comes out. And it's like, I'm reading the reviews for Thor today. And I'm like, God dang it. This is not going to get. I know I'm supposed crisis. to go see it tomorrow night. Yeah. And like the reviews on it are not great. I'm, I'm as bummed out as anybody. 
I, and I saw Lightyear. It makes no, Lightyear the movie makes no sense whatsoever. There's no. I mean, I, I saw it and I was like, "There's this thing's definitely gonna bomb." So, anyways, back. Sorry, not to not to get into the fun stuff yet. To answer your last question, the Democrats are desperately looking for an issue to point voters to. They kind of, you know, the inflation numbers are bad over here. You guys are, you know, we've had less optimism about the economy than we've had in forty years. Um, but like, there's this other thing going on, like, look over here, look over here. This is the shiny object. And they think it's an issue where, uh, you know, they, they would love for us to focus on that, but I just don't see it. I mean, in the last national poll abortion, uh, you know, the abortion issue is at like 5% on the most important issue on a vote determinative basis. And that's not enough for the Democrats to win. Uh, Brad, all right, we've done our 2022 rundown. Can we, can I, can I pivot here to some Let's see where this goes and just talk about, I didn't know that you were part of the fraternity uh, of aficionados for the movie Heat, uh, which comes, and I, I can just see people either like fading off this podcast or not, but- This is where they turn it off. <laughs> I, I don't care. I'm doing this podcast for me, you. I think Tony Glover uh, is a big uh, Heat fan. My friend Jimmy Miller at the League of Cities is a monster Heat fan. I've got several other people like if I do any like if I do a tweet about heat, uh, there's like 10 people that are like, oh, my God. And then um, it doesn't they don't go viral or anything like that. But we just all go down this rabbit hole. So you are part of this. You're part of our uh, of our, our group now. I think it is the best movie of the 90s. Um and then I would tell you, I think the best movie of the 2000s, which is The Dark Knight, is almost a shot for shot comic book remake of Heat. I mean, it's very clearly like Nolan watched Heat and was like, I want to turn this into a Batman movie. And you get The Dark Knight. That, that's how. No, I'm a Michael Mann stan. I love yeah. everything he's done. I even yes. like Black Hat. Like, I'll defend Black Hat if you need me to. I love Last of the Mohicans. I love Public Enemies. I really like Miami Vice. I don't know why people don't like Miami Vice more. I think Collateral is one of the most criminally underrated movies of all time. I think it may be Tom Cruise's seminal performance. Um, and so, like, I love everything Michael Mann has ever done. But yes, I love Heat. I think it is. I think I I have a list of like my top twenty five movies of all time um, that I have. I bought from Apple so that I could have them when I'm traveling and I'm on a plane and just need to bug out for a little bit and he is currently ranked fourth on that list well we're gonna have to ask at the end what are the uh the three ahead of that i will say i come from heat you know um i i loved all of the de niro pacino movies going into it my dad kind of looks like al pacino at that period in heat like that look like they were like similar in age my dad's gone now but he's got that kind of like you know, kind of Italian, but not really. And they just visit. So like, as I'm growing up, this guy, I feel like I'm living with Al Pacino and they're both even kind of the same, like, like height and that they're both smaller men that are just, that are just explosively large, you know, when they're talking and booming voices. And so I kind of like thought I was growing up with Al Pacino. So I had this guy as like a hero already. And then I get into it and it just like, if you play the end song, Moby's uh, God Moving Over the Face of Water, I don't think that's the exact title, but um, like that just evokes my father for me. So it's like this emotional, like the same 
connection people have like, oh my God, mama's spaghetti or whatever. I get from like watching Pacino at that point um, in heat that, you know, kind of like that period, a little bit of like uh, that, what's that kind of throwaway movie, Frankie and Johnny that he did, like that was my dad. And so I'm into it and then I go see it and I'm blown away. Although we were at miracle five for all of our Tallahassee listeners that there was a movie theater on, uh, uh, Thomasville, the movie theater catches on fire. And so I am delayed for like a week getting to see heat. And like, I just, you know, if a movie theater catches on fire, you always kind of remember that. Um, and so all this goes into like heat and then what happened, you know, so you're, you think about that period in your life. I'm, I think like 19, 20, 21 years old uh, at this point. And the bank robbery scene becomes real life out in Los Angeles. And this is right at the uh, advent of like reality TV and like OJ was a year before in 94, um, where like, where you would have like the LA helicopter cameras and all of a sudden this is happening in real life. And you're just like, oh my God, think about how huge this movie is, how horrible it is now, unfortunately, too many people are inspired by movies to do evil things. But these guys basically, real life bank robbers do the heat scene and you know they get they die i mean it's 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 a they do a play for play for it and it, so heat is just this incredible film and then i will say fast forward 25 years to the start of the pandemic and i remember reading just a great piece about how heat was the perfect movie about the pandemic because it was such a movie about isolation and the coldness of it and that it was having a, like this third or fourth wave of, of interest in it. And somehow, I think to your, your point, Heat has, um, is etched in a lot of people's minds as maybe, I think maybe one of the five best movies of the last, you know, last generation. It is on a lot of people's list. I think it is regarded maybe as the most underrated, like mainstream American movie of the last like 25 years. I don't know many movies that, just didn't show up and in any nominations at all. And then is are now like regarded as just a masterpiece and that people keep revisiting. And so um, we're bringing it back to heat because you asked me and I loved it. You were like, do you watch the podcast, the rewatchables? Um, which I thought was so cute because I live and die for the weekly release of the rewatchables and they've done heat as you and I know, they've done heat three times out of 200 shows. The three um, heat. The three, the three heat. heat. Does, uh, let me ask you this. Does heat ever show up? I know this is impossible. Does heat, when you're taping a commercial for <laughs> a, a, a candidate and you have zero budget, Michael Mann has $100 million, how do you work Michael Mann into your, into your low-budget television <laughs> ad for a congressional candidate in Northeast Florida or wherever, how do you get in uh, uh, the Michael Mann aspect into your production? It's actually, I, I'm laughing because I'm thinking like, man, I should write a script with somebody saying, give me all you got. <laughs> um, uh, I'll see if I can work that. But I will tell you like heat informed from, and, and I'm a nerd about this stuff. Like the cinematography of heat actually informed was way ahead of its time. If you look at the stuff that shot, the color temperature of heat 
is so drastically different than all the other stuff that was shot in the 90s. It has such a cooler blue look uh, than everything else that was shot. And that look was 10 years ahead of its time. In 2005, in the mid-2000s, when the DSLR boom and all that stuff came along, the color temperature of everything started to come down. And Michael Mann did that long before everybody, not just everyone thinks about like the grainy stuff because he shoots the, you know, he always shoots the stuff underexposed and it has this like grainy look to it, the color temperature. that. And so for me, the only way it really informed, I wish I, I wish I had a better answer of like the cool stuff I could do to make it look like heat. Um, but I do, I do think it, you know, I'll look at a, I'll look at a frame and be like, Hey, that it's just too warm. We've got to cool it off because my preference of, color temperature is, is informed a lot by heat. And ultimately the Dark Knight did too. Uh, the color palette on it is just a much bluer, cooler color temperature. And I, I do think that affects some of the stuff that I shoot because I'm, I'm much more interested in that. I also love the way, um, and he, I'm not the first person to say this of course, but the way man shoots at night, like just his, yeah. I don't know that there is, I don't know in the entire history of cinema of the, you know, and I say all this stuff because there's always, you know, somebody out there are much better film school students who will know some, you know, auteur who was incredible and only did three films that nobody watched. But of like the mainstream American directors, I don't know that anybody can capture the essence of night the way that that Michael Mann does, you know, and I think about like the helicopter scenes and uh, heat, but I also think like Miami Vice which a lot of which is shot at night is just, it's just incredible. Like, and you get, it doesn't feel like they're shooting at 4 AM in the morning. They cleared it all off and they're trying to imitate night. It really does feel like you are in a sweaty Miami beach nightclub at 3 AM getting ready to do a big Coke deal. And, and you're just vibed up on that. Uh, And I, I think you're so right. Miami vice, I don't get it. There's that is a very tout. That is a there are great actors working in there. Um, there's no cheesy bullshit. I mean, it is a really good film. It's a it, it's such a great and it's it is his best looking movie. Mm. I think by far. Mm, I think he, a- I think he's a really good. He he. I forget the name of the cinematographer that he works with, but the it is his best looking movie because Miami lends itself to night stuff. I think better than LA does in heat. I think it's a beautiful movie, but Miami is just a night city. LA, you know, LA has a different feel to it. Um, the only other movie, this I'll nerd out on for a second on film stuff. If you've never seen Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. Um, yes. Yes. Barry right. Lyndon is like, you want to talk about shooting night stuff. I mean, Kubrick shot that movie by candlelight right in the sixties, you know, like with film, which is insane. I mean, we can do that stuff now with digital because the sensors are so crazy, but like he shot that on film in the sixties by candlelight. He had to make lenses. They made special lenses to shoot Barry Lyndon. And from like a cinematography perspective, it's just so crazy that he was able to do that. He's a genius at night, but, but collateral is the same way. You know, that whole movie takes place in one night. And, uh, and so I think, um, uh, I think collateral, you know, collateral is the same way. He just, he's so good at shooting at night and to your point. And he loves that because that's why his, you know, his stuff has all the, the grainy look to it because he shoots a lot of that stuff at night with, with slower speed film. And it gives it that grain. That's just so distinct to man. Well, and some people, 
like I said, there's a lot of talk about Tom Cruise right now because of, you know, what he's doing with Maverick. Um, and I was listening to another Bill Simmons podcast or Ringer podcast, and they were doing like a discussion about Tom Cruise's best films. And he so often um, gets held up. Magnolia, which is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite films. He, the, you know, the TJ Mackey character got nominated. And so some people say that that may be his best performance or maybe fourth on, born on the 4th of July. And that may be his most Oscar worthy performance. But I will say like, if I'm Tom Cruise, I have got to love what I did most in collateral more than almost any other film. I mean, first of all, he looks, he looks amazing. And it goes to Michael Mann's ability to always, you know, he understands what to do to make men look great. A la, you know, Don Johnson in early Miami vice De Niro, Val Kilmer in heat, um, you know, Colin Farrell in Miami vice again, you know, what he, like the way he made just this man, this, this, this teen idol into this evil menacing, um, creature night creature, um, I just, God, I can watch that. You talk about rewatchable movie. That is a movie I can put on. If it is on at any point, I know where they're at. I know what hit they're going on next. I can watch that movie with the almost exception. I don't need to really watch the very end with the cat and mouse at the end with Jamie Foxx and Cruz, but all of the, the first, you know, two hours of that movie are just, are a perfect action thriller heist capped off with an incredible shootout. Uh, at some like Ugh. Korean town um, uh, nightclub that is better than anything that he really even did, even in Miami Vice. Well, so much, to your point, like so much of his movies are about isolation, and he has he clearly has a very I don't know if pessimistic is the right word, but he he has this view of LA, and I've never lived there, so. But he has this view of L.A. as a place where like loneliness festers. And there's a lot of that in Vince, in uh, in Heat, but way more of it in Collateral. I mean, the whole point of Collateral, right? The very ending, the last line yeah. is, you know, the, the dying alone on the subway and nobody realizing because you're just alone in this massive metropolis. Um, I did not know there and- was even a subway in L.A. <laughs> I know that's not, but like L.A., like. Does anybody? Yeah, I guess it's like, an L train. It's not really a subway. I well, guess it's like an L train. I didn't realize um, there was like, yeah. you, like you transportation. Know, <laughs> right. You know, like Chicago has the loop and like you've been on the subway in New York and you know, Marta, you know, like, you know, DC, but it's like, I don't know. Like, does anybody in Florida ever like really go to LA other than like, I, I don't even like, do we have a reason to go out there? Like, I, and I'm not, I know yeah, people. Not often. <laughs> like we just don't go yeah, out I there. Newsom would like you to believe that there is. Yeah. We just, we just don't <laughs> go there. Like, it's not like nobody in Florida is ever saying, I mean, maybe San Diego, I can see that, but like nobody in Florida is like, you know what I want to do is like, I want to go take a vacation in Los Angeles. Like they might hit San Fran and obviously again, they're hitting San Diego and stuff like that. But like, the way we go to New York, DC, Chicago, uh, obviously East Coast, we're just never getting on a plane and like doing a seven hour flight just to go chill. Uh, we all stop at Vegas. Um, are you ready for my, you ready for yeah, my heat hot take? Give me, Probably unanswerable question, nit, picky knit. Yeah, give it to me. Okay. 
I, and I didn't, I, I rewatched heat again for probably the 50th time, uh, this week on a plane, um, in preparation for this. Here's my question for you. Vince is so buttoned up and everything is so planned and everything that he does rewatching the first heist. What is Wayne Grow's job? Why, why did they need Wayne Grow? There's no, he doesn't drive one of the cars. He like, the only thing he really does is hold guns on the guards as they're robbing the bread truck. But there's three other people standing around him too. There's no reason for Wayne Grow to be on the first heist. There's no reason. Can you get away without having Wayne? All right. So you've got. I know they need it for the movie to happen, but I'm saying this is where it falls apart for me. Like, because you have, like, all right, so what is, Sizemore is just muscle, right? Like, he right. is driving the, so he drives but the. But he drives the, the truck. He drives and the semi. He, he gets out, and he could, I, I mean, I guess they're thinking that one guy per guard, but that seems like overkill, doesn't it? You might be yeah. right. The like, only argument you can make is, so, uh, Danny Trejo, Sizemore, um, and Vincent, are all looking out. They're standing with their back to the bread truck. And then uh, and then um, Wayne Grow is standing facing the guards. But like, if you're Vince, don't you just go, hey, we don't need to pick up one extra random guy for this. Like, we'll, I'll just turn around and look at the, the guards or size moral turner or Danny Trejo will look. It just, it feels like, an oversight of Vince's planning to add a guy day of, you know, he's not cool. Even though he says he's cool. It's the old Dane cook joke about right. everybody wants to yeah. be in a, in a bank. Heist. There's always one guy and they say he's cool. He's never cool. <laughs> I feel bad. All right. So now you're going to, you've got me down the rabbit hole. Number one, like I feel bad for Dennis Haysbert's girlfriend. Like she is so invested in that guy. Like she is driving him to his shitty job and dropping him off. Yeah. Can you, I mean, like, uh, God, that job, I mean, her life, you know, man, that sucks because I'm thinking she waited for him while he was inside the prison where he met Neil McCauley, right? Like, so yeah. she's been like, hey, we need man, 30 we- more seconds with her. This was a realization yeah. I had last night. So yeah. you see her in the bar. Yeah. She sees the news. Yeah. We needed 30 more seconds of her for more closure on that because all you see, like she, she looks distraught, but you need, you need one more scene with the kid or at home or like, you know, there needs one more small snippet to tie that loose end all together for me. It's already pretty much the longest movie that you can watch again and again. <laughs> yeah. And you're like adding, you're like, no, no, we need, we need third. Like, I want to get Jeremy Piven's backstory when, like, people don't realize yeah, like, Jeremy right. Piven. What? And I'm like, yes, he's Before the doctor. The hair plugs. He, yeah. yeah, he's the doctor that treats um, uh, De Niro and Val Kilmer. But what's awesome is if you watch the original trailer, like, there's some line in it. Like, De Niro says something like, "I'm double the worst trouble you've ever had." That's not in the movie. So clearly there's some trouble this doctor has had in the past. I want to know what is going on with this doctor that he's the go-to for Neil McCauley's like bank crew. Um, there's, there's so many. Well, I am on, I am on the, I am on team. Um, 
I think this is, uh, I think it's Koppelman. I forget who, who makes this point. I am on team. You can cut out all of Natalie Portman from that movie. And it's the same. Oh, see, I can't. Oh, so I love Natalie. Oh man. Gosh. Wow. That is a tough take. That I think that is an extreme. So, so when we're talking about my number one movies, my, my top three movies, the reason layer cake is number three instead of heat is because layer cake is a perfect film. There is no scene. And, and this is Brad Harold. Thank you for joining (laughs) us. Any Okay. All right. First of all, like Brad, I I mean, wow. Like the melt. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Let me let you make your argument for layer cake, which is a really good film. I don't even know that it's the best like robbery heist movie set in London that year. I mean, I'm thinking like rock and roller or like, or like, I don't know what you're rock and roller. I think I, I love all the, I love all the guy reaching movies. Snatch is in my top 25, but, but layer cake is a perfectly pay, perfectly paced. There is not one thing in that movie that you would have to, that you should cut out. It, it is, it may be the most perfect movie, you know, from the 2000s right up there with uh there will be blood you know it's a it it is it is matthew vaughn no matter what he does for the rest of his career he will never top what he did with layer cake okay so let's let's uh start with layer cake i will say it's very good i actually and i because i was just thinking about layer cake the other day tony glover is the only person still listening to this podcast right i know i know um (laughs) i I think layer cake's a little confusing. Like uh, I, I, I'm still, I'm, I, 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 it's really good. I get it. And it, I love, like, I'm like, does the, the, does the one black guy really, does he really need to beat the shit out of the bum that bad? I get that they explain why, but it just felt like, man, that was, that was a tough scene. And I, I will say, I really do think rock and roller, which is, obviously a little as more farcical farcical than um layer cake i i just it's a much funnier movie guy Ritchie, you know guy Ritchie does comedy you know he does comedy gangster stuff did you Uh, like oh i'm just so they did this guy Ritchie ranking on some podcast i had the other day and they didn't even rank revolver and so I was like, I was aghast because I think, and now I haven't seen it in a few years, so it's not really like a rewatchable, but Revolver, I think is a, like a criminally underrated film. I understand it was like such a departure. People thought like, oh, he did, he did Lockstock, he did Snatch, and now we're getting a new, and he's got Jason Statham again. Like we're getting a new, uh, you know, English uh, or British uh, crime, you know, gangster movie. And he like turned that all on its head. And so I think it just, people did not get what they were expecting, but it is a really smart movie in the way that it was done. And I think, I think it's really underrated. I actually, I, I, I went after that movie did what you're supposed to do, which is get you thinking about other things. And um, like, I went and read a bunch of the stuff about ego um, afterwards and I still have not gotten like my whole like head wrapped around ego being your number one enemy, but I really believe it. And like, am like, try like 
this is like a five-year journey and I'm still struggling with it, but the idea that the person that is your greatest enemy is staring you right in your face and it's your own, I feel like in politics, this is so important, like your own self-perception of yourself um, is, is your number one enemy far and away. And, you know, it, and it's almost hard to battle against it. It's hard to beat it. And maybe even when you think you have, you haven't, um, it, I thought it was a very humbling movie in that way, but you're right. Like, I don't think, I think they wanted more out of Statham. I think they wanted more like, you know, rock and roll, uh, aspect to it. And I thought they were going to do a sequel to rock and roll at some point. And well, he ends it by saying, you know, rock and roll will return. And it, it, uh, it hasn't returned yet. But they right? haven't done anything. Have you read any of the, um, have you read any of like the Ryan holiday daily stoics stuff? No, but send it to me. Why? He had, he has a book called ego is the enemy. Okay. Um, you should, I would, so I'll send you a link. You should, and everybody reading this, he's, he's great. The daily Stoic stuff, but Ryan holiday wrote a book called ego is the enemy to your point. And then I just read a book called the war of art. And it's basically the nonfiction version of revolver about how like your ego, uh, uh, um, Stephen Pressfield, the guy who wrote Gates of Fire, yes. wrote it. Um, and it's all about it, it's it's really helpful for me because he's a writer and he talks about writing, but it does everything. Um, and basically how like your ego creates this resistance and resistance manifests manifests itself in a lot of ways. For me, it's procrastination. Um, but that uh it, it's a really enlightening book. He talks a lot about ego and and uh, I think you would if you've been struggling with that, you should read The War of Art. You'll really like it. I am reading right now. I'm a very slow reader. Um, it's like one of the like, it's not, I'm not embarrassed by it, but it's like um, in my, in our profession and with what I do, like I'm just a slow reader. I can read magazine articles very quickly. I can read all the stuff that we put out and everything, all the, I can skim and I read, I don't know, a hundred thousand words a day or whatever. I don't even know. Right. I can't even imagine all the words that I read. I am the slowest novelist reader. I probably only get through maybe two or three dozen books a year. Um, and I will say, uh, and to kind of tie a bow on it, although I do want to ask you one other thing. Um, I'm reading Heat 2. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you how far you're into it. I'm, I, I'm only just into it just because it takes me, you know, I'm one of these guys. It's so funny. Like we got a, we had a flight. I prepare so much to get, for like when we're like traveling, like what I'm going to do on the plane. Like, I'm like, Oh my God, it's going to be four hours of just uninterrupted. And I'm going to catch up on all my shows and I'm going to watch old man on FX and blah, blah, blah. And I end up like playing the New York times spelling bee uh, game. And it takes <laughs> up like two hours and then I'll read like mm -hmm. entertainment weekly online. And I'm like, shit, I didn't catch up on anything. And it's like, and I, but it, the, it's, it's how much work I do to get ready for it. I'm like, I get my AirPods uh, max all charged up and I'm just ready to go and relax on that. And it just, it just never happens. Like I just end up, I end up working. Um, I end up taking the time of like uninterrupted, no calls, like just, you know, banging out emails from 30,000 feet. And I just never get there. Um, number one question, what are, what are the other two movies on this? insane list that you've got uh going on uh, right now it's godfather one godfather two okay so, all right okay you've read uh, sorry and in reverse order i i think godfather two is actually a better movie um so I, godfather two godfather one layer cake uh heat 
there will be blood. And then if you've never seen, you probably have seen this because you love this. The best movie of the last 10 years uh, is a movie called Hell or High Water. Oh um, yeah. And I think you have seen it because we, we talk a lot about Taylor Sheridan. Um, but I think, I think it, it you know, got nominated for an Academy Award, but a lot of people didn't see it, you know, just because of when it came out. But I, I think, you know, I, I love JD Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, but like, if you want to understand, you know, white working class angst, you want to understand post-traumatic stress, you want to understand relationships between brothers like there's, there's no better movie than that in the last few years. I mean, the scene, how those brothers interact, I have a brother about the same age. We're probably the same distance as those two guys are the way you interact with your brothers and like express, uh, express love and, and friendship amongst like other males. It's it's such a great encapsulation of that. I, I just, I think it's, a, I think it is as close to a perfect movie as, as layer cake is. It's just a great, and Jeff Bridges is it's one of his best performances. It's, um, you know, I don't think anybody gets um, the the white working class male in America like Taylor Sheridan does, you know, it like people like look at Sons of Anarchy, you know, at first it was like, oh, this is Shakespeare on bikes. And it wasn't. And then they're like, oh, no, this is the wire uh, on motorcycles. And they're like, no, it wasn't. Then it was what it was, which was it was basically a, a, a violent fun soap opera basically about you know a group of people doing what they you know these guys were not getting rich none of these guys lived in a two-story house you never see any of the sons of anarchy or you know you never see any of the sons of anarchy um living anywhere like particularly nice um and you're like and now you're you know it's it's they're just basically and obviously you know um uh, Taylor Sheridan wasn't the showrunner, but he was a big writer and he, he starred on that or he right. appeared in that show often. And then he's taken it now on um, what's the prison show he's doing um, uh, with uh, uh, the mayor of yeah, Kingstown. With, with Kyle Chandler. Yeah. yeah and it's Kingstown. just, again, it's not, this guy's not making like, you know, he gets paid. They're like, we'll give you $1,500 for this. And you're just like, it, which is, and and he treats it with the reverence that fifteen hundred dollars really is. I wish I could get, you know, some people in my life to understand that like fifteen hundred dollars that was a week of doubles working, uh, you know, <laughs> at a restaurant yeah. for me oh. to get fifteen hundred dollars. So you know, now it's just have like, you yeah. watched have you watched eighteen eighty yet? You know, eighteen I have not. Uh, that is and that's crazy because I I think I was on I think I was on Yellowstone. Um, very early. And in fact, I will say if I had two jobs, I would like to do number one, I would like to name um, the colors of the paints that Sherman Williams and other paint companies use. I think I would be very good at that. (laughs) And then number two, I think I would be good as like one of the douchebags in the rooms that like green lights films after or shows like after like watching it and just offering notes. Like I, I dream of having that job and just be like, nope, there's like, I knew the moment Sopranos was on that it was going to work. And like my ability to walk away from a show, I'm like, nope, this show is, it just doesn't have it. I will say I am so much better at that than picking political candidates or, or sports betting (laughs) or anything else. If there was money to be made on whether I know a show is going to make it to syndication, that is where my money would be made. It has not nowhere else. Am I good at predicting, but so did you like 1883? I think so. I actually fell out of Yellowstone. 
Um, I was a big, big Yellowstone guy yeah. in the first season. Yeah. I thought the second season was good. I, I, ta- I think Taylor just got too busy in the third yeah. season. I think it kind of became a character itself. I think some people have like told me that the fourth season is better. Um, but I picked up 1883 and it's funny. I kind it's of basically just same- a, it's just a real estate development show at this point. And I mean, that's part of like, right. yeah. it's just like, are we going to turn this? I'm interested into to a, see this Fuqua series though. Yeah. I'm interested to see this Fuqua series. Cause I like, I think Anton Fuqua is like criminally underrated as a director. I think the what is he doing right now? Equalizer. Also? He there's a show that he's got out right now that somebody was just touting. Um, do you well, know? He's doing this Taylor Sheridan show. I forget what it's called. It's not out yet. But there's he's a, no, he's he, he's running the show for Taylor Sheridan. He is he doing Old Man? Is he the director on Old Man on FX? Oh, is he a part of, I, I've only seen the first episode of Old Man and it's really good though. It's really good. It's so different. And it's like, I love, I'm watching, I am into that now into the second episode. And I got to tell you, I love, um, I love the John Lithgow character, especially the way they're doing the flashbacks yeah. to the young John Lithgow, young Jeff Bridges character. It's being shot at a different, I don't know, like it's definitely got that FX feel to it. Like, um, there's a like they clearly just do oh, not Fuqua's care. doing Fuqua's doing the terminal list the terminal list okay so i was you know like terminal list got just shit on i think but then a couple of other people pushed back and are like no you should watch it it's very pulpy it's good Fuqua knows what the he's book doing is here. so pulpy yeah i i read the i read the book and like the i read the book in like three days but it is uh it's such trash fiction but it's a lot of fun so i my wife read it too so she i haven't watched any of the show yet because she makes me she's making me wait it's one she wants to watch together last have you watched and i don't know if this is in your wheelhouse but are you watching the bear no what's that oh my god all right so the bear is by far my my best well it's so hard to say because we own the city was was just so incredible um but the bear is my choice for it's why i went to new york last week i'll I'll say it on the podcast basically so like the bear is a show about a restaurant it's um it's eight episodes i would say it is a perfect season of television um it is i forget i'm not i'm gonna butcher name so i'm gonna leave that out it is um on hulu yeah the guy is a was a uh chef de cuisine at uh, Noma and this is and it's a scripted show. Um, he was a chef de cuisine at Noma, which is considered the best restaurant in the world. He has to come back to his dead brother's restaurant, this like shitty joint in Chicago that puts out like beef on whack, um, and because his brother committed suicide, and uh-huh. there is like a it is um, about the intensity. I saw the trailer. Yeah, the intensity of the I restaurant now. business. I saw the trailer. It's, 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 I, it's if, it's as if Anthony Bourdain had written a scripted show and it was, it turned out really, really well. And it has all of the like current effects of television, the, just the quick, um, not the quick cuts, but the, the flashbacks. And then there is a cameo by John Barenthal that will just fricking like there, he's actually in two scenes uh, that will that will make you cry. It meant something to me because obviously I worked in the restaurant business. But what 
this this guy does as he's working in this shitty joint again and he one of the things that at high-end restaurants is they will say yes chef every person is a chef and so if you were there's a story in phoebe damrouche's memoir about per se the restaurant in new york she stumbles upon she was a waitress and then became a captain she sees thomas keller the famed chef working the dishwasher line she puts the dishes in a little hard he kind of admonishes her to take it easy and they then she gets into explaining how just saying yes chef to everybody including the dishwashers was a way of showing universal respect and you see through this show like everybody's like why the fuck are you calling me chef and then you see these just basically incredible characters people that have had their lives just broken and beaten they evolve into this place where they make it work and they're saying yes chef to each other and overcome incredible human emotions and everything like that i'm telling you the show makes me cry it has incredible needle drops I'm by in. john mayer uh by radiohead it's fantastic i'm telling you yeah. watch it this weekend you it, you cannot go wrong on this show i'm in i've often said i think there if i didn't do politics there were two there were only two other industries that i think are like exciting enough that i could work in and not be bored out of my mind and that is the restaurant business i just i love a, i love a show i love a show about a bunch of people running around in a kitchen with their heads on fire you know i worked in i worked in uh not in not in french cuisine you know i, I waited tables and stuff but i love the restaurant industry and that like feeling of excitement when the dinner rush comes in and you're running around and the only other thing i think i can do is like live television production when you're on like the sets and like you see the people running around you know get the gas and all that Fuck it, that we'll do it live you're under this pressure <laughs> yeah right right that, so those are the only so I love, uh, uh, you know, that's why I like the newsroom, but um, I'm now I'll watch this bear show. I, I, I told Michelle, I said, I, I wrote about going to per se. It's actually one of the few decent things that I ever wrote about in 2007 on the night before New Year's Eve. And I'll leave it people. I'll leave, I'll leave it for people to discover, but I'm like, I've got to go eat in New York. And she's like, what? And I'm like, we've got the points. We've got so many points from three years of canceled travel. Uh, we've got the points. Let's just go up there uh, and let me just eat up there by myself. And she's like, all right, we're going to go to shows. You can go do your dinner thing. This is clearly some emotional thing with you, your dad, John <laughs> Barenthal, uh, Anthony Bourdain, whatever. I don't know what's going on. Just go do your thing. And so she let me go to like per se. And it was, um, it, it was, of course, it's like, you know, it's like 30 courses of the most, you know, perfectly composed dishes yeah. on the face of the earth. Um, and so, um, needless to say, well, this is not it. like that, but, but have you been, have you been to Don Angie yet? The one that just got the Michelin star in Chelsea? No, I have not. Okay, put this on your list. I know you go to New York a lot. Put this on your list for the next yeah. go around. The, the chef that they just got a Michelin star a couple months ago. We went right before they got it, either right before or right after. And we kind of walked in early in the afternoon and, and we're like, hey, we got it. We're catching a show later. Like, I know you don't have any reservations. And they were like, I love when New York does this. Where they're like, yeah, you can sit down, but you got to be out of the table by 730. I got people yeah. coming in. Yeah, and yeah, we're yeah. Like, totally. We'll, yeah. We'll, we'll move in and out. Don't worry about us. And I love that. And so we sat down and it is, hands down the best lasagna you will have in America. That's awesome. And it's incredible. And they just got a Michelin star. So put that on your list next time. I will. There. I will. We will, we'll be back up there soon. Okay. We have covered everything I wanted to cover. 
heat, lots of heat, Ron DeSantis, more heat, some weird turn into layer cake that I'm going to have to go back now and watch that again tonight. <laughs> and just see, uh, I, I, I like them. I love the film. I love, I always like the, what does he say? I like the way uh, the one actor, um, great actor. I forget uh, what his name is. Uh, he's like some privacy, please. When they're at the club at the beginning and he wants to talk to Daniel Craig, some privacy, please, if you mind. And so, and I'm so into Britain uh, now. It's like, I mean, the speech at the end, not yeah. to give away the end, but the yeah. speech at the end about, you know, welcome to the layer cake sun yeah. is just, it's so great. There's so many great lines in that. Everybody loves to walk through a door marked private. Yeah. Um, I, there's just, you know, Tom Hardy's great in it. It, it just, it's a great, it's a, it's a perfect movie. Everyone early Tom like Hardy, movie. like Tom Hardy right now. Very like early Tom Hardy. No, but, and it's also, it's just like, so uh, first of all, the scene with, um, who's the female? Um, uh, that Hugh Grant, uh, uh, Sienna Miller. Yeah. Her, her scene in the club. Like, so my wife knows this, like it goes, my wife, very long gap. Don't get me wrong. All, like huge gap. Then she knows like Rihanna, when Rihanna comes on stage, when Coldplay sings with her, Rihanna's right there. And then number three is Sienna Miller smoking and dancing in the club. Like, that's a lot to hand and it's only like 10 seconds but it's like the the sexiness of that scene is maybe last says this yeah if you don't listen to the sub beacon podcast they they're another great movie <laughs> podcast but jv last says this he's like look sienna miller sienna miller is a beautiful woman the way she has shot in that movie no yeah. move no no woman has been shot that well yeah. in a movie in decades you know yeah. you got to go back to like hepburn stuff you know to, to, it's incredible the uh the way they shoot her in that movie all right brad i appreciate it best to you and your family yeah, I, will, man. I will certainly see you on the campaign trail uh over the next uh six weeks and then the next two months into the general election you be good awesome yeah thanks, thanks for having man. me